I'm the great-granddaughter of slaves. You are listening to What's Important to You, a podcast created by the Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning with only one goal in mind, and that is to amplify the volume and the reach of diverse voices in healthcare. My name is Monica Escalante, and I am your host. I plan to give you intriguing insights on various topics, including end of life and grief. I want to open your minds to new perspectives on some often overlooked topics. Welcome. Today's episode is Black History Reflections for Women in Healthcare. This podcast is going to celebrate Black History Month, and for our celebration, we have chosen four hospice-dedicated people that are going to talk about their stories in a celebration. We want to celebrate their individual stories, their individual upbringings. And these are stories that you may not see on TV. They may not make it to the Washington Post, but these are amazing stories that will help all of us understand the voices of diverse communities. So we will do this for other communities in other months to come. I am delighted to introduce today uh, one of our guests and dedicated hospice um, person is Maud Harrison Hudson. Maud is an ordained minister. She's experienced counselor with over 14 years counseling at Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice. She's also a Sunday morning chaplain, a podcaster, and a blogger. As bereavement counselor, in addition to counseling grieving clients, she develops and conducts workshops around grief and loss. She also facilitates grief and loss support groups. And since March last year, Maud has been facilitating virtual support groups. Our second guest today is Ms. Renee Few. Ms. Renee Few has worked as pastor of health and director of health awareness ministry at two local churches for many years. She has also been a chaplain at various hospitals in the Washington metropolitan area. Ms. Renee has a strong commitment to helping persons obtain peace and comfort by the inclusion of moral and or spiritual support in their care. Welcome, Ms. Renee. Pleasure to have you with us. Um, our third guest is Ms. Trevon McLean. Ms. Trevon McLean became a social worker to empower people to help themselves. As a social worker, she often addresses many difficult issues, such as end-of-life issues, advanced care planning, and funeral planning. She's truly an expert at conducting tough conversations. She also helps people navigate through difficult family dynamics and multiple conflicts. Ms. Trevon has been a social worker for 16 years, and she has been working in the hospice field for five. Thank you for being here, Trevon. Last but not least, Ms. Terry James Taylor. Terry James Taylor has worked in the hospice environment for 30 years. Her relentless commitment to hospice care comes from knowing that at the end of life, those families that chose hospice is because they are going through a very difficult time and this process is very involved, but the hospice staff will help them. She enjoys working with and educating the African-American community on end of life care and advanced care planning issues. This is a passion of hers. 
She also works as director of facility, and she makes sure that our inpatient unit, Casey House, is running in good shape and supporting patients and their families. It's a pleasure for me to have all of you today. And as I said in the introduction, our goal is to share your stories, your personal stories, so that our listeners and viewers can become acquainted with um, stories they may not hear every day. So I'm going to start with uh, Ms. Maud Harrison-Hudson. Um, Ms. Maud, you grew up, all of you have in common, all of you grew up in the greater Washington, D.C. areas. How was growing up in this area? How was growing up in this area? Interesting and, um, and tough. I mean, I grew up when in um, Washington, D.C., when it was a very, um, still very segregated uh, city. And um, so I, I lived in an African-American community, attended schools that were students, all African-Americans. Um, and um, it was an interesting time. You're saying it was tough. Um, can you give us a little more detail on? Um, tough in the, that it was um, very segregated. When I was a kid, um, I did not know what I know today. Um, about segregation, you know, I remember being um, probably somewhere around nine to 10 years old and my grandmother Maud, my paternal grandmother, um, on Saturday morning, she would oftentimes take us to um, uh, Murphy's Five and Dime stores. They had Five and Dime stores in DC at the time. And um, part of our going there was for her to treat us um, to um, lunch, and we would have to stand up. Um, you know, I know that white people were sitting. Uh, I didn't know it was because of segregation that we were not allowed to um, to sit and eat our meal. Um, you know, I was just happy um, that I was spending time with my grandmother. So that's just kind of one example that comes to mind um, readily. Thank you. Next, I'm going to go to Miss Renee. Renee, how was it for you growing up in this area? I um, actually grew up in uh, Baltimore City, and it was, I always tell people I had a good childhood. It was a family affair and lived in a neighborhood where we were always um, supporting one another. It was interracial and definitely the African-American residents um, binded together, and we really um, we're very conscious of being supportive of one another. And I always reflect on that, being an adult now and just seeing the value of coming together um, as a family and having strong relationships because that's the type of thing, if you implant it in a kid, a child, as they grow up, it'll have profound effect as far as their overall development. So I definitely remember the strong family aspect when I grew up, the neighborhood that I grew up in. And although we were neighbors, not blood relatives, we operated as family. Yes, sense of community, very, very nice. Um, Trayvon? Um, when I grew up, I, I just recall it was, it was very interracial and it was very diverse. The African-American community I grew up, one thing I can remember that my father instilled in me was this, the sense of pride and it was just very different. Even though he was from a different generation, it was that sense of just have a sense of pride in yourself. And I remember the way him and my mother, how they 
gave my name and my siblings, we all had unique names. And so that was one of the ways that they kind of stepped forward um, with that because my parents have very, you know, very uh, generic names, but they named me Trayvon, which is was very unusual um, when I was growing up. I remember people used to always ask me, oh, how'd you get that name? Or, you know, that's so weird or that's so strange. I mean, now it's a very common name due to an unfortunate incident, but just those little things, they instilled that. And I just remember that he always told me my father, you know, hold your head up high and you're no less. So it was, it was different. It's like he, they were trying to, to make us proud, my parents. And it was very diverse and it was very mixed um, the way I grew up and that was my neighborhood. And so I appreciate those little things, just even the name, because I would always get questions and I didn't have any problem explaining it. And so to this day, I love that and I'm proud of my name. So that's how I grew up. It's a beautiful name and it's unique still. Um, and what a nice gift to you to say that, you know, give you a unique name and, and this message that comes with being so special. Thank you, Trevon. Ms. Terry? Uh, yes, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. And just like Ms. Maud, I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And some of the things that stick out for me is the, the unity that we showed within our community. Um, when it came to um, being raised, you were raised by the whole community. You know, you, parents would step in when needed to, you know, tell you what to do if you need to go to the store for them, different things like that. Um, community was very strong in our neighborhood. Sounds like everybody shares that. Oh, one mess, that one idea that is coming to mind based on some of the things um, that you've shared is this message that you are not less than anyone. You are yourself in, in this identity. Do you want to talk on about that? Well, I know for me, one of the things that, and I think that's the census with everybody in the group, our parents or my parents in per se, they never spoke of racism. They didn't teach us that. They just carried on, made sure that we were loved. And as Trayvon was saying, making sure you get a good education, being proud, um, you're not less than. Uh, Miss Smart, when you talked about going to the store, your grandmother, you were enjoying your time with your grandmother, but you had to stand. But it doesn't sound like your grandmother shared with you the reason why you had to stand. You know, that was something in our in so many communities, they kept away from children because racism, I still say to this day, is a toy behavior. And our parents did not teach that. They didn't teach, oh, that person hates you because you, because of the color of your skin. Um, I never forget a story for me when I was a child. I was, it was me and a little white girl. We were playing in the store in Sears in White Oak. And we were just playing and playing. And I had given her a nickel. And all of a sudden, my mother, we were playing in the clothes and everything. And we went our separate ways. I met back up with my mother. She was with her parents. But they searched the whole store until and made the child give the nickel back. And 
I was looking at her, she was looking at me and my mother was very well aware of because they, the parents had exchanges. And on the way home, I never forget my mother. I asked my mother, I asked her, why did they make her give the money back? And my mother just simply said, because um, baby, they didn't want her to take money from strangers. But of course it was otherwise. It was because of you being a black child. They don't want anything from you or anything like that. So that's one of the things that sticks out with me. And we, I was very young, but I'm glad our parents had the wherewithal to keep so much away from us. They protected you. Exactly. And I would just say, um, you know, my situation is probably a little different mm -hmm. in that I'm the great granddaughter um, of slaves and my um, paternal grandparents, as well as my mother and her siblings, all migrated from South Carolina, Jim Crow, South Carolina, during that period um, where there was a lot of hatred. And so my mother spoke of that from time to time. We never went back. She never took us back to visit South Carolina because of the hatred and the racism there. And um, my paternal grandparents were part of the great migration from South Carolina to Washington, D.C. to provide an opportunity for my father and his brother to not end up being lynched um, because that was the era of the lynching and all in Jim Crow, South Carolina. So there were no good memories or positive memories. And so there was a lot of sternness and rigidness in my household. And I'm sure it generated from growing up in the environment that they did. Yeah. My parents came from South Carolina as well. And my parents, their parents were still there, but we did go back and we went back every summer. But the stories that you're talking about, Ms. Maud, um, my parents, they shared those stories with us. They know all too well. And um, my mother was born in 33. So she was amongst some of the Jim Crow things too. But as soon as they were able to leave and, and go north, that's exactly what they did. But we still visited. We still have a lot of family there. And to get that rich history, and you lived it, my mother lived it. And to share that history with us, some of those Things are not told in books. They're they're just not. And I'm still grateful that even with the even going through those things like that, I know my parents, my relatives, they still had love in their heart for people. They were Christian people and they let us know that that behavior should not be tolerated and you do not have to tolerate it. We want to do better. They they still never taught us hate. But we were clearly gave us understanding as to what was going on with us. You know, hate was put upon us from generation to generation. I find it remarkable that the, although they knew um, the origin of a lot of these um, situations that you were enduring, like segregation, or you couldn't give a, a nickel to, to um, a um, white child, they still protected you in the most loving way mm -hmm. and didn't need to make a big issue of that to uh, instead, probably at some levels from what you're saying, Maud, it became a little more rigid than it would have otherwise 
as mm -hmm. a protection mechanism, mm -hmm. um, but but showered with love and, and protection. And I feel the strong sense of community might have emerged from, from that experience as well. I always appreciate that, you know, my grandmother um, who was in her uh, 90s, I value the fact that she um, just always um, reiterated just the individual value that we had in spite of our history, in spite of all that they had gone through, you know what I mean, as a culture, she still reaffirmed the value of each and every one of us. And I always look back now and appreciate that because, you know, at the time you don't appreciate it as a kid where they keep on telling you what you can do and don't let this stop you and all of that. But if she hadn't been faced so much discrimination and all in her life in the South, you know, North Carolina, um, of course, she wouldn't be trying to implant that self, the strength in us as individuals, you know, and that, that whole concept of, um, our own individual uniqueness was always, um, she always talked about that and you can do it, sure you can do it, you know, and just reiterating um, who we were as persons. And I think as a culture, it pays to have that kind of um, foundation, that kind of background background from our history where people pushed us in spite of what went on. We can't deny what took place as far as discrimination and things like that, but don't let that be um, an impediment. You know, allow that to be a part of your growth. You understand you, you have a, a history that you don't want to push under the rug, but you can use that. I call it as a stepping stool just to kind of take you higher. So I'm grateful that my grandmother reiterated, you know, the value of each and every one of us and what we can do in spite of society, in spite of what else is going on you believe in yourself and you work hard, you know, A, B, and C can be obtained. And I really, really strongly believe that that has an impact, even on people today, Black History Month and that type of thing, and even the months that follow, being able to put into individual persons their own individual uniqueness. And that can be a tool to help them to continue to grow, especially as a culture. And, but we also can't forget those who, so many in our community that have not had that and, and the impact that it has on your health, right. your exactly. mental status, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, the different disparities when it comes to um, employment, housing, mm -hmm. the, the life expectancy is way different even today for wow. African-Americans, yeah. Mm -hmm. True, quality, you know, quality of health service that we obtain just so many. Mm -hmm. Um, different things, just at a totally different level than other yeah. groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and indeed the environment that we grew up in has a significant impact on who we become. Right. And um, everybody's um, growing up situation was different. People were socialized um, differently. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother Maud was the um, was more of my cheerleader. Um, and my grandmother Maud was also, um, she was the one who took us to church and she was a praying grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I've read that the prayers of our ancestors are still being answered today. Yeah. So, so my grandmother Maud now has uh, great, great grandchildren who are my grandchildren who are in law school and medical school and that's right. You know, so yeah. Prayers are being answered. I love that that it took some time, but they are being answered. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. 
yes, yes. So uh, um, it sparked some curiosity in me as to know, um, knowing that that history um, shapes us in, in many ways, whether makes us stronger, more resilient, um, drawing strength out of um, overcoming all these um, problems. How does that help you in your work in hospice care? Or, or what do you see as we serve African-American families um, facing the end of their lives of their loved ones? I think that African-Americans come to the end of their lives with various and sundry um, stories. I think everybody's story is unique to them. And, you know, some people, when they reach the end of their lives, they are ready and open to going on to whatever comes next. And others are kicking and screaming and not ready. So it, it depends a lot on whether there's unfinished business um, at the end of life as to what those end days might look like. I think it's important to be aware of um, people's individuals' overall spirituality at the end of life. Um, it's those spiritual pieces that make a difference at the end of life. Is there any unfinished business? Are relationships intact? People, there are about five different ways that people connect from a spiritual perspective, and that's through nature, relationships, um, that spirit or soul thing within uh, religion. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. So it's important to connect, somehow find a way to find out how the person connects spiritually and communicate with them through whatever that forum is. Yeah. Yeah. Trayvon? Yeah. As a social worker, I mean, I love this question because I feel like, especially in the Black and African-American community, I feel like this is where the part of the job that I really love to do because uh, this is a the Black and African-American community, a lot of the healthcare field in general, I mean, take hospice out of it. This is what we do, hospice, yes, but there's a mistrust because Black people and African-Americans in general, we've been treated a certain way. And a lot of times it's not been favorable from doing, uh, you know, experiments, you know, the Tuskegee experiment, and also the, the healthcare, it's not always equitable to also not having your voice being heard and also choices not being explained. So as a social worker, one of the things that I like to do when I'm working with the families is make sure they understand the choices and the things that are being explained to them. And a lot of times that's often what I hear in the African-American and black community is that a lot of times people will explain things, doctors, nurses, and they go over it. And because people might not understand, they might just say, okay, yeah. And then later, they need somebody to translate it in layman's terms. So it's very important, right, that we make sure people understand, you know, what they're agreeing to or what they're not agreeing to or what their choices are. And so that's that's what I do as a social worker um, and let people know what their rights are, that they don't just, one, have to accept anything and, and that, you know, this is their life and they have control and say so over it and what their rights are. So that's part of what I do, along with the difficult conversations. So, I mean, and then you throw, of course, the, the family dynamics into the mix. So imagine all that, but <laughs> that's what I love to do, I know. <laughs> but um, 
and that that's just very important. I think for the Black and African American being heard, that that's just a big big piece, and that that's a feeling that I think a lot of people have that they don't feel like their voice is being heard. Like they may agree to something, but later, oh, I didn't really want that. Oh, I didn't really understand. So I think it's very important that we make sure people do understand or people do know that they have choices, not that we're just giving people or making them or telling them what they need to do. No. So it's working with people and respecting people. I, yeah, I, I, I've talked to a number of African-Americans who, who have a real misunderstanding of what hospice is, um, have the understanding that hospice kills people. And um, my late husband was a hospice volunteer for many years in DC. And um, he had said, if ever he became ill, that he would want to be served by hospice. And four and a half years into our marriage, he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And, um, and he became a Montgomery hospice patient for about 19 days, uh, which is actually how I ended up at Montgomery hospice because the nurse and the chaplain at that time kept saying to me, um, because I was a chaplain at the time, you know, after you do some healing, you might want to consider Montgomery hospice. Um, and I guess a couple of years after he died, um, I applied at Montgomery Hospice, and here I am still 15 years later. Thank you for that story, Maude. Yeah. yeah. Renee, do you want to add anything else that you observe that serves the African-American Black communities? Yeah, I think it's important to um, strive hard to meet people where they are, especially spiritually. And mm -hmm. just because some people um, believe that they're going to be healed, um, some people believe that they're going to transition and be in the presence of God. So whatever their belief system is from the chaplaincy perspective, I um, strive strongly to meet them where they are and hear them, share their concerns, send up their prayers and be a support mechanism for them. And it makes a world of difference. It really does because who am I to judge? Who am I to determine? You know what I mean? What path that they need to travel. They know what their beliefs are. And when we can give the support that's needed to help this process be as comforting and as peaceful as possible, that has a profound effect. The main thing is recognizing that spirituality is very important in our culture. So being able to meet individuals um, specifically where they are, I think has to has a profound bearing on, you know, how they cope with what they're going through. Tell us a little bit more of it. The listeners uh, may not understand what means meet people where they are. If a person is at end of life and believe that um, he or she is going to be healed um, physically, um, we, doctors might have said that that's not likely to happen. Nevertheless, you know what I mean? I don't need to argue or reprimand them for a belief that they're going to be healed. I need to be able to meet them where they are and help bring comfort in that same place that they are. Whereas on another side, there are others who have said, yes, they've accepted the fact that they believe that they're going to transition, they're going to die and be in the presence of God and being able to help them with that also, because sometimes it's sorrow in that, sorrow of leading, leaving grandchildren behind or leaving children behind. So still being able to give them the spiritual support and presence that they need um, is just as important as those who still desire that you pray for their healing and, you know, that type of thing. Because sometimes 
they might not be given a physical healing, but be given a deeper emotional, you know, um, healing that can help them uh, be comforted, even if, you know, they're, they transition or they pass in a short period of time that they did not anticipate it. They might've thought their physical healing was coming about, but then, you know, they recognize how the, as the body declined that they were not gonna be here uh, much longer, but they found healing emotionally or mentally. And that can have a profound effect as far as when they finally face that challenge of actual death. And in the story you shared about meeting people where they are, you don't have to move them anywhere. You meet them at whatever, whether they are in hope for yes. or whatever they are. Thank you. That's really beautiful. Ms. Terry, you work tirelessly with the um, faith community. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. That's, I think, the best thing that I like to do because everyone else on the panel, you all work directly with the families right during and after. And what I like, as we mentioned before, I've been in the hospice environment for 30 years. And I remember when I started working in hospice, hardly, there were hardly, and which still stands true today um, in the way of the amount of African-Americans that utilize the program, I enjoy working with the African-American churches to educate them on, on end-of-life care, building up the trust and teaching them about our programs and building relationships with the, with the different churches. And we don't go around to hundreds and hundreds of churches, but I think the importance is for me is that to have three or four churches who will invite other churches in to teach the community, I think is priceless because there's so many different ministries within the church that we've been able to help, the health and wellness ministry, the bereavement ministry, the missionary, the seniors, and so many different ministries within the church we've been able to educate. And one of the things that I thought when I first started in the outreach department, as we tried to move towards churches was the fact that it was very difficult. I think had it not been for one particular woman, um, one of the pastor's wives who had a hospice experience in the South with her brother, she really pushed for Montgomery Hospice to come and to be able to educate their church. And had it not been for that, it's, it's a difficult subject to talk about with some African-Americans and in the African-American community, but to be able to usher that in and to make them feel comfortable in so many instances now they can't get enough. They call, you know, they will call us to come out. We do different things. And the Ms. Marjorie has spoke about that earlier. It took one of the churches that we work with more than a year before they even wanted to start learning about Hospice 101. But we first went in with spirituality at the end of life. And they, you know, they latched onto that. And then from there, everything else started growing. They started asking more questions. They started wanting to know more about, well, is that true about morphine that it'll kill you? But as time went on, they embraced it so much. So I like to see that outcome. And for everybody within our organization who helps out with that too, that that's great. Ms. Marge, we, I think all of us together here have done some type of workshop together or gone out into the community 
in the African-American community to um, educate them. So I, I enjoy doing that. And in the last year, we've moved in from face-to-face -face in the community to online, Zoom, or whatever technology we use to... Um, to do the different webinars now instead of in person. I look forward to going back in person, though, because everybody's doing webinars and different things like that. But we have become very creative and we've had no choice. So we have a lot of different combinations and we were able to reach people who, especially with the seniors, that may not have been able to attend conferences or, you know, different um, workshops that we've done. So um, even with the pandemic, we've learned how to pivot and still make our work meaningful to our families. And, and that's been, I was just going to say, that's been very true in bereavement. Mm -hmm. um, over the past year, we have served our clients virtually and um, doing workshops and six-week support groups. And we just finished a series of grief and loss support groups this week. And many of the people who are attending would not necessarily have attended otherwise because they would have to drive at night. Mm -hmm. And um, many older people um, don't like driving at night. So we've been able to reach some people um, with the support groups that we would not have under, would not have been able to uh, if it were not for being in the middle of a pandemic. Absolutely. And with the weather and everything right now, along with the pandemic, they wouldn't have been able to. So that's been a plus. And, and I'm sure that's some of the things I know in community outreach and education that we will continue to do, not only virtual, but getting back into community as well. So that's a good thing. I mean, the pandemic bring, did bring about some good things. We do have to think about the good in it yeah. as well. Yeah. And Trayvon and, and Renee, you continue to see patients. Tell us about how are you managing to work with families in this COVID time? I um, was faced with the challenge of a person definitely being, you know, extremely close um, to death and family wanted a priest um, to come and give patient last rites. And there are, you know, churches that do still provide that um, with the priest being masked and having the necessary um, gear and gear and all on for protection. And I'm grateful that um, I was able to, you know, kind of mediate, work with the priest and the daughter to arrange that. And you'd be amazed at just the comfort that it brought family and everything. Now, there were stipulations that had to be, you know, Put upon the person couldn't be 20 family members you know at the patient's bedside and that type of thing in the go. but it was arranged and the daughter was very very happy that that took place because like i said it was in a 24-hour time period the patient passed so to be able to kind of arrange those type of things and bring comfort you know to family and or patient is i call it very soothing to me it's very beneficial to me because we would like you know what i mean for people from the church to go and pray at the bedside and that type a thing but that's not allowed now that's not in the best interest of the patient and family now so we can do just some of the um, other things that still allow that spiritual um, support to be rendered makes a world of difference so I was glad we were able to do that visit with a priest and Renee didn't you tell didn't you all have a baptism as well during COVID yes yeah. We had a baptism as well and did it, you know, taped it by way of Zoom and family like that. It, it was just amazing. But it's a matter of, you know, working as a group, the family, you know, the 
chaplain, social worker, whoever needs to come together, nurse, to be able to render that type of care. Yeah, that was very rewarding to that patient also because she always wanted to be baptized and she was in her 70s. Hey, opportunities such as that at that time in her life meant an awful lot to her. And she uh, transitioned. She passed within a few weeks also. Yes. Beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Renee. Trayvon? So with this pandemic, there has been a lot of good things, like Ms. Terry said. There's now all these different online platforms that you can use. So that's been one of the good things out of the pandemic. So as a social worker, I'm able to still engage with the patients and families. I can do the visits, whether it's via on the phone, uh, have the capacity to do some virtual visits if you know the family needs it, as well as still in person on a case-by-case basis. So I'm able to do all of those. And I'm still, it's been busier than ever as far as advanced care planning, and the family dynamics, of course, that's actually increased due to the pandemic. So that, that's been busy. So I'm able to still email stuff back and forth from forms and assist patients. So I mean, though we still have that availability to do it, you know, whether it's on the phone, like I said, or online or case by case in person. Thank you. As we close our podcast today, I want to thank each and every one of you for sharing your own story, for sharing your passion for caring for people at the end of their lives. And these uh, gifts of the community that all of you grew up in, uh, whether it was in, in different circumstances, but you got values instilled in you of love and community that came across very strongly for me from this conversation. The last question to close our podcast today that I wanna ask is some pearls of wisdom to people that are working with African-American communities and what is really important when caring for them. And we have in the room right now, four different generations of African-American women. And I'm gonna start with the youngest and we're gonna go up from there. So Ms. Trevon, what pearls of wisdom do you have for the listeners? I would say um, to be open to change. This pandemic has showed us to expect the unexpected and to be open to change, be willing to listen, to learn, and to experience new things. The only thing that is going to stay the same is change, and that's inevitable. So when you're working with the Black and African-American community, ask them what they would like, talk to them, you know, respect them, ask questions. And it's the same with the newer generation or the younger generation, because a lot of times people actually do have a lot to say, and sometimes you can learn something. So that, that's what I would offer, you know, be, be open. Be open to break your own assumptions, probably, um, and misconceptions. Ms. Renee? Yes, I would say to persons, definitely keep the faith Hold on to your spiritual beliefs when you're faced with this kind of challenge as a culture. Spirituality just played a profound effect as far as, you know, where we went, how we survived and that type thing. So I pray and hope and pray that as we deal with persons, you know, who are, you know, challenged with end of life, that we can just know the comfort that can be provided for them with our presence, with our prayers and with the affirmation of our faith, it can just help them be at peace with what is coming before them. Thank you, Ms. Renee. Yep, we hold on to our own faith 
and support embrace other people's faith in yes. this process. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Turn it to you, Mr. James Taylor. I would say in the scheme of everything that we've gone through in the past, present, and in the foreseeable future, we need to continue to have the faith, be open, be honest, be willing to listen. And once you're willing to listen and open up your mind and your heart, change will take place. I think that's about all I have to say with that. And as we move forward to Miss Maud, we've asked that she close because in our community, we make sure that we look up to our seasoned seniors and listen to them. If it wasn't for them telling us the history of our community in so many areas, where would we be? So, Ms. Mott? Well, I would just add to what Trayvon and Renee have said. You know, it's important to have open hearts and open spirits. Recognize everybody as human, human and different. And in order to do that, the heart is the key. The heart is our emotional center. So open heart and compassion to African, the African-American uh, communities and um, accept them as they are. We come in all shapes and forms. So we just ask to be accepted as we are. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone. To close our podcast, uh, I'm going to turn to um, Siri James Taylor to tell us a little bit about the song that we're going to listen to uh, as a closing of our conversation today. Well, the song that we're going to listen to is the um, Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies of liberty let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full the faith that the dark past has taught us sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us facing the rising sun of a new Let us march on till victory is won. This What's Important to You, a podcast by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice, aiming to amplify diverse voices in healthcare. Thank you so much.